0: Book one, Chapters eight and nine of the Fatal Three by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight. Such things were. Mildred had been motherless for a year when that new love began to grow, which was to be stronger and closer than the love of mother or father, and which was to take possession of her life hereafter and transplant her to a new soil how well she remembered that summer afternoon on which she and george greswold met for the first time she a girl of seventeen fresh simple-minded untainted by that life of fashion and frivolity which she had seen only from the outside looking on as a child at the follies of men and women he her senior by thirteen years and serious beyond his age her father and his father had been companions at the university as undergraduates with full purses and a mutual delight in fox-hunting and tandem driving it was this old oxford friendship which was the cause of george greswold's appearance at the hook on that particular summer afternoon mr fossett had met him on a houseboat at henley Regatta, had been moved by the memory of the past on discovering that greswold was the son of george ransome of magdalen and had brought his friend's son home to introduce to his daughter it was not altogether without ulterior thought perhaps that he introduced george greswold into his home he had a theory that the young men of this latter day were for the most part a weak-kneed and degenerate race and it had seemed to him that this tall broad-shouldered young man with the marked features dark eyes and powerful brow was of a stronger type than the average bachelor a pity that he is rather too old for mildred he said to himself supposing that his daughter would hardly feel interested in a man who was more than five-and-twenty mildred could recall his face as she saw it for the first time to-day in her desolation sitting idly beside the lake while the rhythmical beat of the paddle-wheels died away in the distance that grave dark face impressed her at once with a sense of power she did not think the stranger handsome or fascinating or aristocratic or elegant but she thought of him a great deal and she was silent and shy in his presence let him come as often as he might He was in mourning for his mother, to whom he had been deeply attached, and who had died within the last three months, leaving him Enderby Manor and a large fortune. His home life had not been happy. There had been an antagonism between him and his father from his boyhood upwards, and he had shaken the dust of the paternal house off his feet and had left England to wander aimlessly, living on a small income allowed him by his mother and making a little money by literature. He was a second son, a person of no importance, except to the mother who doted on him happily for this younger son his mother was a woman of fortune and on her death george ransome inherited enderby manor the old house in which generations of greswolds had come and gone since dutch william was king of england there had been a much older house pulled down to make room for that red-brick mansion and the greswolds had been lords of the soil since the wars of the roses red rose to the heart's core and loyal to an unfortunate king whether plantagenet tudor or stuart by the conditions of his mother's will george ransome assumed her family name and arms and became george ransome greswold in all legal documents henceforward but he signed himself george greswold and was known to his friends by that name he had not loved his father nor his father's race he came to the hook often in that glorious summer weather at the first he was grave and silent and seemed depressed by sad memories but this seemed natural in one who had so lately lost a beloved parent gradually the ice melted and his manner brightened he came without being bidden he contrived to make himself as it were a member of the family whose appearance surprised nobody he bought a steam launch which was always at mr Fawcett's disposal and miss fausset went everywhere with her father she recalled those sunlit days now with every impression of the moment the ever-growing sense of happiness the silent delight in knowing herself beloved the deepening reverence for the man who loved her the limitless faith in his power of heart and brain the confiding love which felt a protection in the very sound of his voice yes those had been happy days the rosy dawning of a great joy that was to last until the grave mildred fawcett had thought and now after thirteen years of wedded love they had drifted apart sorrow which should have drawn them nearer together had served only to divide them oh my lamb if you could know in your heavenly home how much your loss has cost us thought the mother with the image of that beloved child before her eyes there had been a gloomy reserve in george greswold's grief which had held his wife at a distance and had wounded her sorrowful heart he was selfish in his sorrow forgetting that her loss was as great as his he had bowed his head before inexorable fate had sat down in dust and ashes and brooded over his bereavement solitary despairing if he did not curse god in his anguish it was because early teaching still prevailed and the habits of thought he had learned in childhood were not lightly to be flung off upon one side of his character he was a pagan seeing in this affliction the hand of nemesis the blind avenger they left switzerland in the late autumn and wintered in vienna where mr greswold gave himself up to study and where neither he nor his wife took any part in the gaieties of the capital here they lived until the spring and then even in the depths of his gloom a yearning came upon george greswold to see the home of his race the manner which he had loved as if it were a living thing mildred do you think you could bear to be in the old home again he asked his wife suddenly one morning at breakfast i could bear anything better than the life we lead here she answered her eyes filling with tears we will go back then yes even if it is only to look upon our daughter's grave they went back to england and to enderby manor within a week after that conversation they arrived at Romsey station one bright may afternoon and found the grey horses waiting to carry them to the old house how sad and strange did it seemed to be coming home without lola she had always been their companion on such journeys and her eager face and glad young voice on the alert to recognise the first familiar points of the landscape hilltop or tree or cottage that indicated home had given an air of gaiety to everyday life the old horses took them back to the manor but not the old coachman a great change in the household had come about after lola's funeral george greswold had been merciless to those servants whose carelessness had brought about that great calamity which made seven new graves in the churchyard before all was done he dismissed his bailiff mrs wadman and her husband an under dairymaid and a cowman and his housekeeper all of whom he considered accountable for the use of that foul water from the old well accountable inasmuch as they had given him no notice of the evil and had exercised no care or common sense in their management of the dairy these he dismissed sternly and that party feeling which rules among servants took this severity amiss and several other members of the household gave warning let it be a clean sweep then said mr greswold to bell who announced the falling away of his old servants let there be none of the old faces here when we come back next year except yours there will be plenty of time for you to get new people a clean sweep suited bell's temper admirably to engage new servants who should owe their places to her and bow themselves down before her was a delight to the old irishwoman thus it was that all things had a strange aspect when mildred greswold re-entered her old home even the rooms had a different air the new servants had arranged the furniture upon new lines not knowing that old order which had been a part of daily life let us go and look at her rooms first said mildred softly and husband and wife went silently to the rooms in the south wing the octagon room with its dwarf bookcases and bright bindings its proof engravings after landseer pictures chosen by lola herself here nothing was changed bell's own hands had kept all things in order no unfamiliar touch had disturbed the relics of the dead mrs greswold stayed in that once happy scene for nearly an hour it was hard to realize that she and her daughter were never to be together again, they who had been almost inseparable, who had sat side by side by yonder window or yonder hearth in all the changes of the seasons. There was the piano at which they had played and sung together. The music stand still contained the prettily bound volumes, sonatinas by Hummel and Clementi, easy duets by Mozart, national melodies, Volksleider. In music the child had been in advance of her years with the mother music was a passion and she had imbued her daughter with her own tastes in all things the child's nature had been a carrying on and completing of the mother's character a development of all the mother's gifts she was gone and the mother's life seemed desolate and empty the future a blank never in her life had she so much needed her husband's love active considerate sympathetic and yet never had he seemed so far apart from her It was not that he was unkind or neglectful. It was only that his heart made no movement towards hers. He was not in sympathy with her. He had wrapped himself in his grief as in a mantle. He stood aloof from her and seemed never to have understood that her sorrow was as great as his own. He left her on the threshold of Lola's room. It might be that he could not endure the sight of those things which she had looked at weeping in an ecstasy of grief. To her, that agony of touch and memory, the aspect of things that belonged to the past, seemed to bring her lost child nearer to her. It was as if she stretched her hands across the gulf and touched those vanished hands. Poor piano! she sighed. Poor piano that she loved! She touched the keys softly, playing the opening bars of La Sidara La Mano. It was the first melody they had played together, mother and child, arranged easily as a duet, later they had sung it together the girl's voice clear as a bird's and seeming to need training no more than a bird's voice these things had been and were all over what shall i do with my life cried the mother despairingly what shall i do with all the days to come now she is gone she left those rooms at last locking the doors behind her and went out into the garden the grand old cedars cast their broad shadows on the lawn the rustic chairs and tables were there as in the days gone by when that velvet turf under the cedars had been mrs greswold's summer parlour would she sit there ever again she wondered could she endure to sit there without lola there was a private way from the manor gardens into the churchyard a short cut to church by which mother and daughter had gone twice on every sunday ever since lola was old enough to know what sunday meant she went by this path in the evening stillness to visit lola's grave she gathered a few rosebuds as she went flowers for my blighted flower she murmured softly all was still and solemn in the old churchyard shadowed by sombre yews. a churchyard of irregular levels and moss-grown monuments enclosed by rusty iron railings and humbler headstones of crumbling stone covered over with an orange-coloured lichen which was like vegetable rust the names on these were for the most part illegible the lettering of a fashion that has passed away But here and there a brand new stone perked itself up among these old memorials with an assertive statement about the dead. Lola's grave was marked by a large white marble cross carved in alto relievo on the level slab. The inscription was of the simplest. Lola, the only child of George and Mildred Greswold, aged twelve. There were no words of promise or of consolation upon the stone. On one side of the grave there was a large mountain ash, whose white blossoms and delicate leaves made a kind of temple above the marble slab. On the other, an ancient yew cast its denser shade. Mildred knelt down in the shadow and let her head droop over the cold stone. There was a skylark singing in the blue vault high above the old Norman tower, a carol of joy and glad young life, as it seemed to Mildred, sitting in the dust. What a mockery that joyousness of springtime and nature seemed! she knew not how long she had knelt there in silent grief when the branches rustled suddenly as if a strong arm had parted them and a man flung himself down heavily upon a turf-covered mound a neglected nameless grave beside lola's monument she did not stir from her kneeling attitude or lift her head to look at the newcomer, knowing that the mourner was her husband she had heard his footsteps approaching heavy and slow in the stillness of the place the trunk of the tree hid her from that other mourner as she knelt there he thought himself alone and in the abandonment of that fancied solitude he groaned aloud as job may have groaned sitting among ashes judgment he cried judgment and then after an interval of silence he cried again judgment that one word so repeated seemed to freeze all the blood in her veins what did it mean that exceeding bitter cry judgment chapter nine the face in the church two months have gone by since that first visit to lola's grave when the husband and wife had knelt so near each other and yet so far apart in the infinite mystery of human consciousness he with his secret thoughts and secret woes, which she had never fathomed he unaware of her neighbourhood she chilled by a vague suspicion and sense of estrangement which had been growing upon her ever since her daughter's death It was summer again, the rife, full-blown summer of mid-July. The awful anniversary of their bereavement had passed in silence and prayer. All things at Enderby looked as they had looked in the years that were gone, except the faces of the servants, which were for the most part strange. That change of the household made a great change in life to people so conservative as George Greswold and his wife, and the old home seemed so much less like home because of that change the squire of enderby felt that his popularity was lessened in the village for which he had done so much his severe dealing with the offenders had pleased nobody not even the sufferers from the epidemic whose losses he had avenged he had shown himself implacable and there were many who said he had been unjust it was hard upon wadman and his wife to be turned off after twenty years faithful service said one of the villagers the squire may go a long way before he'll get as good a bailiff as thomas said another For the first time since he had inherited the estate, George Greswold felt himself surrounded by an atmosphere of discontent and even dislike. His tenants seemed afraid of him and were reticent and moody when he talked to them, which he did much seldomer than of old, making a great effort in order to appear interested in their affairs. Mildred's life during those summer weeks, while the roses were opening and all the flowers succeeding each other in a procession of loveliness, had drifted along with a slow, dull stream that crawls through a desolate swamp. There was neither beauty nor colour in her existence. There was a sense of acuity, an aching void. Nothing to hope for, nothing to look back upon. She did not abandon herself slavishly to her sorrow. She tried to resume the life of duty which had once been so full of sweetness, so rich in its rewards for every service. She went about among the cottagers as of old. She visited the shabby gentilities on the fringe of the market-town, the annuitants and struggling families the poor widows and elderly spinsters who had quite as much need of help as the cottagers and whom it had always been her delight to encourage and sustain with friendliness and sympathy as well as with delicate benefactions gifts that never humiliated the recipient she took up the thread of her work in the parish schools she resumed her old interest in the church services and decorations in the inevitable charity bazaar or organ-fund concert she played her part in the parish so well that people began to say Mrs. Greswold is getting over her loss. In him, the shock had left a deeper mark. His whole aspect was changed. He looked ten years older than before the coming of sorrow. And though people loved her better, they pitied him more. She has more occupations and pursuits to interest her, said Mr. Rollinson, the curate. She is devoted to music, and that employs her mind. Yes, music was her passion but in these days of mourning every music was allied to pain. Every melody she played, every song she sang, recalled the child whose appreciation of that divine art had been far beyond her years. They had sung and played together, often singing alone in the summer dusk, in that corner of the long drawing-room, where Lola's babyish chair still stood, she had started, fancying she heard that other voice mingling with her own, the sweet, clear tones which had sounded seraphic even upon earth oh was she with the angels now or was it all a fable that fond vision of a fairer world and an angelic choir singing before the great white throne to have lost such a child was almost to believe in the world of seraphim and cherubim of angels and purified spirits where else could she be husband and wife lived together side by side in a sad communion that seemed to lack the spirit of unity the outward semblance of confiding affection was there But there was something wanting he was very good to her as kind as attentive and considerate as in their first year of marriage and yet there was something wanting she remembered what he had been when he came as a stranger to the hook and it seemed to her as if the glass of time had turned backwards for fourteen years and that he was again as he had been in those early days when she had watched him curiously interested in his character as in a mystery he was too grave for a man of his years and with a shade of gloom upon him that hinted at a more than common grief he had been subject to lapses of abstraction as if his mind had slipped back to some unhappy past it was only when he had fallen in love and was wholly devoted to her that the shadow passed away and he began to feel the joyousness of life and the fervour of ardent hopes then the old character dropped off him like the serpent's slough and he became as young as the youngest boyish even in his frank felicity this memory of her first impressions about him was so strong with her that she could not help speaking of it one evening after dinner when she had been playing one of beethoven's grandest adagios to him and they were sitting in silence she by the piano he far away by an open window on a level with the shadowy lawn where the great cedars rose black against the pale grey sky george do you remember my playing that adagio to you the first time i remember you better than beethoven i could scarcely think of the music in those days for thinking so much of you ah but the first time you heard me play that adagio was before you had begun to care for me before you had cast your sloth what do you mean before you had come out of your cloud of sad memories when first you came to us you lived only in the past i doubt if you were more than half conscious of our existence she could only distinguish his profile faintly defined against the evening grey as he sat beside the window had she seen the expression of his face its look of infinite pain she would hardly have pursued the subject i had but lately lost my mother he said gravely ah but that was a grief which you did not hide from us you did not shrink from our sympathy there there was some other trouble something that belonged to a remoter past over which you brooded in secret yes george i know you had some secrets then that divided us and and falteringly with tears in her voice i think those old secrets are keeping us under now when our grief should draw us nearer together she had left her place by the piano and had gone to him as she spoke and now she was on her knees beside him clinging to him tearfully george trust me love me she pleaded my beloved do i not love you he protested passionately clasping her in his arms kissing away her tears soothing her as if she had been a child my dearest and best from the first hour i wakened to a new life in your love my truth has never wavered my heart has never known change and yet you are changed since our darling went terribly changed do you wonder that i grieve for her no but you grieve apart. you hold yourself aloof from me if i do it is because i do not want you to share my burden mildred your sorrow may be cured perhaps mine never can be time may be merciful to you for me time can do nothing dearest what hope can there be for me that you do not share the christian's hope of meeting our loved one hereafter i have no other hope i hardly know if i have that hope he answered slowly with deepest despondency and yet you are a christian if to endeavour to follow christ the teacher and friend of humanity is to be a christian yes and you believe in the world to come i try so to believe mildred i try faith in the kingdom of heaven does not come easily to a man whose life has been ruled by the inexorable fates not a word darling let us not talk of these things we know no more than socrates knew in his dungeon no more than roger bacon you in his old age unheard buried forgotten never doubt my love dearest that is changeless you and lola were the sunshine of my life you shall be my sunshine henceforward i have been selfish in brooding over my sorrow but it is the habit of my mind to grieve in silence forgive me dear wife forgive me he clasped her in his arms and again she felt assured of her husband's affection but she knew all the same that there was some sorrow in his past life which he had kept hidden from her which he meant her never to know many a time in their happy married life she had tried to lead him to talk of his boyhood and youth about his days at eton and oxford he was frank enough but he was curiously reticent about his home life and about those years which he had spent travelling over the continent after he had left his father's house for good i was not happy at home mildred he told her one day my father and i did not get on together as the phrase goes he was very fond of my elder brother they had the same way of thinking about most things randolph's marriage pleased my father and he looked to randolph to strengthen the position of our family which had been considerably reduced by his own extravagance he would have liked my mother's estate to have gone to the elder son but she had full disposing power and she made me the heir this set my father against me and there came a time when dearly as i loved my mother i found that i could no longer live at home i went out into the world a lonely man and i only came back to the old home after my father's death this was the fullest account of his family history that george greswold had given his wife from his reserve in speaking of his father she divined that the balance of wrong had been upon the side of the parent rather than of the son had a man of her husband's temper been the sinner he would have frankly confessed his errors of his mother he spoke with undeviating love and he seemed to have been on friendly terms with his brother on the morning after that tearful talk in the twilight mr greswold startled his wife from a pensive reverie as they sat at breakfast in the garden they always breakfasted out of doors on fine summer mornings they had made no change in old customs since their return as some mourners might have done hoping to blunt the keen edge of memory by an alteration in the details of life both knew too well how futile any such alteration of their surroundings would be. They remembered Lola no more vividly at Enderby than they had remembered her in Switzerland. My dearest, I have been thinking of you incessantly since last night, and of the loneliness of your life. George Greswold began seriously as he sat in a low basket chair, sipping his coffee with his favourite setter, Cassandra, at his feet. An Irish dog that had been famous for a feather in days gone by but who had insinuated herself into the family affections and had got herself accepted as a household companion to the ruin of her sporting qualities. Cassandra went no more with the guns. Her place was in the drawing-room or the lawn. I can never be lonely, George, while I have you. There is no other company I can ever care about henceforward. Let me always be the first, dear, but you should have female companionship of some kind. Our house is empty and voiceless there should be some young voice some young footstep do you mean that i ought to hire a girl to run up and down stairs and laugh in the corridors as lola used oh george how can you exclaimed mildred beginning to cry no no dear i had no such thought in mind i was thinking of randolph's daughter you seemed to like her when she and her sister were here two years ago yes she was a nice bright girl then and my darling was pleased with her how merry they were together battle battledore and shuttlecock over there by the yew hedge don't ask me ever to see that girl again george it would make my heart ache i am sorry to hear you say that mildred i was going to ask you to have her here on a good long visit now that rosalind is married pamela has no home of her own rosalind and her husband like having her occasionally for a month or six weeks at a time but sir henry Montford's house is not pamela's home She would soon begin to feel herself an incubus. The Mountfors are very fond of society and just a little worldly. They would soon be tired of a girl whose presence was no direct advantage. I have been thinking that with us, Pamela would never be in the way. You need not see too much of her in this big house. There would be plenty of room for her to carry on her own pursuits and amusements without boring you. And when you wanted her, she would be at hand, a bright, companionable girl who would grow fonder of you every day i could not endure her fondness i could not endure any girl's companionship her presence would only remind me of my loss dearest i thought we were both agreed that as nothing can make us forget our darling it cannot matter to us how often we are reminded of her yes by silent unreasoning things like cassandra touching the dog's tawny head with a caressing hand or the garden the trees and flowers she loved her books her piano those things may remind us of our darling without hurting us but to hear a girl's voice calling me as she used to call me from the garden on summer mornings to hear a girl's laughter yes it would be painful love at first i can understand that mildred but if you can benefit an orphan girl by having her here i know your kind heart will not refuse let her come for a few weeks and if her presence pains you she shall stay no longer she shall not be invited again I would not ask you to receive a stranger, but my brother's daughter is near me in blood. Let her come, George, said Mildred impulsively. I am very selfish, thinking only of my own feelings. Let her come. How strangely this talk of ours reminds me of something that happened when I was a child. What was that, Mildred? You have heard me speak of Fay, my playfellow? Yes. I remember the evening my father asked Mamma to let her come to us. It seemed just now as if you were using his very words, and yet all things were different. Mildred had told him very little about that childish sorrow of hers. She had shrunk from any allusion to the girl whose existence bore witness against her father. She too, fond and frank as she was, had kept her own counsel, had borne the burden of a secret. Yes, I have heard you speak of the girl you called Fay, and of whom you must have been very fond, for the tears came into your eyes when you mentioned her did she live with you long oh no a very short time she was sent to school to a finishing school at brussels brussels he repeated with a look of surprise yes do you know anything about brussels schools nothing personally i have heard of girls educated there and what became of your playfellow after the brussels school i never heard and you never tried to find out yes i asked my mother but there was a prejudice in her mind against poor fay i would rather not talk about her george her vivid blush her evident confusion perplexed her husband there was some kind of mystery it seemed some family trouble in the background or mildred who was all candour would have spoken more freely then may i really invite pamela he asked after a brief silence during which he had responded to the endearments of cassandra too well fed to have any design upon the dainties on the breakfast-table and only asking to be loved i will write to her myself george where is she not very far off she is at cowes with the montfords on board sir henry's yacht the gadfly you had better send your letter to the post-office marked gadfly the invitation was dispatched by the first post miss greswold was asked to come to the manor as soon as she liked and to stay till the autumn the next day was sunday and mr and mrs greswold went to church together by the path that led them within a few paces of lola's grave for the first time since her daughter's death mildred had put on a light gown till to-day she had worn only black this morning she came into the vivid sunlight in a pale grey gown of soft lustreless silk and a neat little grey straw bonnet which set off the fairness of her skin and the sheen of her golden hair the simple fashion of her gown became her tall slim figure which had lost none of the grace of girlhood she was the prettiest and most distinguished-looking woman in enderby church although there were more county families represented there upon that particular sunday than are often to be seen in a village church the manor-house pew was on one side of the chancel and commanded a full view of the nave the first lesson was long and while it was being read mildred's eyes wandered idly along the faces in the nave recognizing countenances that had been familiar to her ever since her marriage until that wandering gaze stopped suddenly arrested by a face that was strange she saw this strange face between other faces as it were in a cleft in the block of people she saw it at the end of a vista with the sunlight from the chancel window full upon it a face that impressed her as no face of a stranger had ever done before it looked like the face of judas she thought and then in the next moment was ashamed of her fancy it is only the colouring and the effect of the light upon it she told herself i am not so weak as to cherish the vulgar prejudice against that coloured hair that coloured hair was of the colour which a man's enemies call red and his friends auburn or chestnut it was of that ruddy brown which titian has immortalised in more than one venus and without which potiphar's wife would be a nonentity the stranger wore a small pointed beard of this famous colouring. His eyes were of a reddish brown, large and luminous, his eyebrows strongly arched. His nose was a small aquiline. His brow was wide and lofty, slightly bald in front. His mouth was the only obviously objectionable feature. The lips were finely moulded from a Greek sculptor's standpoint, and would have done for a Greek Bacchus, but the expression was at once crafty and sensual. The auburn moustache served to accentuate rather than to conceal that repellent expression. Mildred looked at him presently as he stood up for the Te Deum. He was tall, for she saw his head well above intervening heads. He looked about five-and-thirty. He had the air of being a gentleman. Whoever he is, I hope I shall never see him again, thought Mildred. End of chapters 8 and 9